Welcome to Cabinet Conversations. I am your host, Shweta Rao, excited to be speaking with two partners from Millbank's Leveraged Finance and Capital Markets Practice in London, Alexandra Grant and Rebecca Marquez. Alexandra has extensive experience of advising both lenders and sponsors in a wide range of complex and cross-border leveraged acquisition, public-to-private, infrastructure financings and restructurings across the full spectrum of products. Rebecca focuses on advising underwriters, issuers and sponsors on a range of complex financings in Europe, the United States and internationally, including leveraged buyouts and in a wide variety of international securities transactions. In today's podcast, Alex, Rebecca and I are going to review 2020's key developments in leveraged finance documents and there have been some surprising ones, spotlight ESG and end with a look into our crystal balls for 2021. Hello, Alex and Rebecca. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. This year has been a tumultuous and momentous year because of COVID-19. How have leveraged finance documents changed because of the pandemic? Alex, perhaps you could start. Yeah, hi, Shweta, and uh, thanks very much for having us. Um, We're very excited uh, to be recording this with you. Um, So what we saw um, at the start of the COVID pandemic was the TLB syndicated markets effectively shut um, and the high yield bond market um, between March and, and June or July. So any new deals that were kicking around at that point sort of went on ice um, because there wasn't a market to syndicate them into. And similarly, uh, any deals, sort of deals that were in execution phase and trying to be syndicated were also sort of postponed during that time. Um, but we still saw... Uh, a reasonable amount of other activity as lenders worked with uh, borrowers and sponsors to try and agree workable solutions um, to the problems people were having. Um, So we saw a fair amount of sort of runs for liquidity financings, um, drawing RCFs, um, trying to utilize existing debt baskets and incremental debt capacity to take advantage of things like the state aid government-backed programs um, and also sometimes to borrow additional liquidity from sponsors themselves. In addition to that, we saw um, a bunch of requests just dealing with issues that borrowers were having um, in terms of complying with the terms of the documents. Um, So we saw a lot of amendment requests trying to deal with actual or potential breaches of the springing financial covenants. Um, so, which applied to the RCF, you know, even in cub light deals, they were usually temporary. So either a temporary suspension or a reset, um, or sometimes changing the way EBITDA was calculated. So sometimes temporarily substituting the EBITDA figure from the previous year, um, with a figure, uh, you know, for the figure for this year. Um, so discounting the effects that COVID had had on their EBITDA. We also saw uh, some requests for, you know, picking debt um, or deferring um, prepayment sweeps um, just to give people additional liquidity. Uh, And then we also saw um, that borrowers were struggling to deliver their financial statements on time just because people, um, business had been generally disrupted. There were alternative working arrangements. um, So there were a lot of extensions for that. Uh, And then there were some amendments to more technical events of default. So, you know, material adverse effect or failure to pay tax on time or cessation of business, things like that, uh, that people needed uh, temporary waivers for. And we saw lenders 
generally reacting well to the amendment request. Um, they often sought additional protections in response. So um, we sometimes saw liquidity covenants coming in um, to replace the financial covenant um, during the reset period or the waiver period. Um, and additional reporting was often required, like monthly accounts, uh, and then sometimes turning off some of the additional permissions in the document, you know, at least on a temporary basis. So shutting off the RP baskets um, or debt incurrence baskets, you know, making sure management was focused on uh, improving the business um, and stopping leakage, at least while uh, these measures were in place. Um, and then finally, we often saw um, some lenders, you know, requiring at least some kind of equity injection or equity commitment from the shareholders um, as a condition to the consents. So obviously the philosophy being they want to make sure that the, the sponsor or the shareholders are sufficiently invested in propping up the business. That's um, a really good roundup, Alex. Thanks for that. Rebecca, what have you seen on the bond side? I think on the bond side, we, you know, we mostly have seen consents in more of a distress scenario. Um, we've really been working with the existing capacity um, in, in the bonds. So, you know, much as Alex said, um, issuers were looking for um, um, liquidity, you know, short-term liquid liquidity. And they, you know, they often use their super senior um, capacity, existing super senior capacity for raising, um, you know, the government-backed financing that was available across uh, many countries in Europe. Um, and in, you know, in various um, cases, they would you know fully draw their RCF to make sure that was you know that was available. And then because many of the credit facility baskets have growers, um, they were using whatever you know amount was available in order to um, in order to take advantage of you know liquidity that was available um, from governments. Both of you mentioned um, EBITDA and the development in a way of um, something called. EBITDAC, which effectively <laughs> means that you can add back counterintuitively COVID-19 costs or in some cases COVID-19 losses to your EBITDA to bolster perhaps your super senior debt capacity that Rebecca, you mentioned, uh, could be found as a grower basket in your credit facilities basket or indeed for other purposes. Have you seen this come into documents and have you have you had your clients asking you questions about this so yeah it was a huge area of i'll start with the sort of latter question because i think it was a huge area of focus um uh, sort of particularly at the start of the pandemic um and has continued to be since um as i mentioned uh, as i think you referred to there were some you know specific changes to the docs on a temporary basis um, uh, in, in connection uh, with, uh, you know, issues around EBITDA in, in some of the amendment requests I was mentioning. Um, and, but those were tended to be specific and, and short-term and controlled, you know, via the consent process. Um, what investors and lenders were more concerned about was provisions that were already in the documents. Um, these documents are very flexible and have a lot of EBITDA addbacks. Um, and they were concerned about how these ones that were already there could be used to do exactly the things that you said. So that was the initial area of focus. Um, and those are things that are actually in, you know, pretty much all documents. So, you know, pretty much every document will have an ad back for extraordinary, unusual, non-recurring gains, loss, charges or expenses. So that was 
you know, the first area that we looked at. I think we, we didn't we didn't see people sort of use it as such, but we were we spent a lot of time talking about it with lenders. Um, and then we did see some things come in to the market, which which I'll come to in a minute. I think the the concern around this one was it, it's clear from extraordinary or uh, unusual non-recurring losses or charges or expenses that you could add back you know, one-off costs, for example, um, incurred by the biz any business in connection with the pandemic. So I don't know, to take an example, if you had uh, one-off cleaning costs, um, you know, to clean your, your factory or your place of work, um, that, that clearly can be added back. In terms of whether losses could be add back, added back, um, we, you know, that's more debatable. Um, losses are the extent to which actual costs exceed actual revenue. Um, you know, in the case of issues relating to COVID, you've got usual costs, less exceptionally low revenue. So the question is, does that produce exceptional or extraordinary losses? And then we saw in other deals, there's, uh, you know, some deals, not all of them will have this. That one is a very common carve out. Um, but there are other types of addbacks. So again, already existing in the deals um, for financial impacts of natural disasters and then add back to things like temporary decreases in work volume um, or facility or property disruptions or shutdowns. Um, again, it was arguable whether the pandemic would constitute a natural disaster, but certainly, you know, not off the realm of possibility that a sponsor or borrower would seek to argue that. Um, and then similarly, the temporary decrease in work volume, um, again, debatable whether you could add back lost profits, but, um, you know, again, wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Um, so we saw a huge amount of focus on people wanting to analyze those terms uh, and, you know, concern about the flexibility that borrowers already had to do these things. Um, we did, as I said, we haven't seen sponsors and borrowers generally seek to use it in a really aggressive way. Um, we saw one German company owned by a large private equity sponsor that did add back um, around 5 million of Q1 profits that they said they would have made um, were it not for the, the state mandated lockdown. Um, and that was what they called adjusted EBIT DAC, um, as you mentioned um, uh, at the start of this question. Um, that actually led to some guidance from bodies like the European Leverage Finance Association, so warning investors against relying on fictitious figures. Um, most of the deals that have gone to market since, so in terms of new terms in the documents, um, they tend to be credits that uh, obviously don't really have so many issues relating to COVID, so they're quite COVID-resilient credits, and that's why they've been you know, coming to market since the market's reopened. Um, so they haven't, most of them haven't needed or included any express treatment um, around COVID. Um, but I have seen them recently in one or two um, deals, um, a specific ad back for lost or foregone revenues and any other negative impacts relating to COVID um, or similar pandemics, um, subject to some carve outs like it being temporary in nature and you can demonstrably um, show that the, the EBITDA can be reinstated as soon as the pandemic is over um, and usually subject to a cap. Um, so it'll be interesting, to be honest, to see whether that clears the market um, in, in the deals where we've, we've seen it in the, the underwritten stage. 
Yes, um, we saw in mass moral in the bond, um, ironically, perhaps the only, let's say, non-aggressive term was that they actually had um, a restriction on adding back losses from COVID-19 into EBITDA. They actually expressly carved it out. So that was um, one documentary example of something in the public realm, which we've seen recently in European documents. So I believe there's been more of um, dealing with the EBITDAC issue in the US. Rebecca, on the bond side, are there any issues with respect to disclosure on this new development? Um, so I think, so on the bond side, you know, we were debating the same, right, having exactly the same debate in respect of, um, in respect of existing adjustments in documentation. And there's only, you know, there's only one example of an express ad back for, um, for COVID with a cap, uh, which was in the US. Um, what I think will be interesting going forward is that bond um, issuers have started reporting, um, you know, the, the impact of COVID and they may be reporting in their bondholder reports, um, COVID adjustments. So the next time they approach the market, they're gonna be hesitant to present a, di a different EBITDA than, than they did, um, that, that they've, you know, recently presented to the market. Um, so I, so the debates that we're starting to have for um, the, you know, deals that will be coming to market and, we, and will be coming to the market next year are, to what extent do we include those same ad backs they reported, um, to, uh, they reported their bondholder reports, and to the extent we do add them back as part of the disclosure, most of the, most of this bond documentation have covenants and um, have ad backs that allow for um, ad backs of the nature made in the offering memorandum. Therefore, to the extent that we're comfortable with making COVID, uh, COVID adjustments in the disclosure, the expectation is that they would be incorporated into the into the adjustments for purposes of EBITDA calculations in, in, in the covenants. That's really helpful to know. We have already seen some new bonds this year, which have disclosed um, a COVID-19 adjusted EBITDA and a non-COVID-19 adjusted EBITDA. And we did have the debate internally on whether they could include those COVID-19 adjustments for covenant capacities. And we concluded that they could, which of course boosted their capacity to incur debt, to make dividends, to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. So this is definitely an area to watch out for. Talking about unrestricted subsidiaries, in the U.S. we've seen uh, more than a few examples of companies, stressed companies, using the J.Crew maneuver of transferring assets out of the restricted group into the unrestricted group and raising priming debt there, Cirque du Soleil, Travel Port, etc. Rebecca and Alex, um, why haven't we seen this proliferance of this maneuver being used in Europe? Uh, this year, you know, one would think that that would be something that um, borrowers would be considering as part of their options to come out of a tight spot. Um, they certainly have been considered, um, um, and it certainly has been pitched, <laughs> um, and we, we've looked at right. of that, but it's ultimately not been the option chosen. So, you know, in a non-distress scenario, um, there have been alternatives to liquidity. Um, so what, as we mentioned earlier, what we've mostly been, you know, uh, issuers have mostly been doing is approaching um, banks and governments and, and pursuing in the first instance, uh, in the first instance, government backed loans. Um, and, you know, where government backed loans haven't been available, 
available, they're, you know, they're less aggressive covenant workarounds that, that, that have uh, um, been avenues to, to liquidity. So next year, if the government liquidity dries up, <laughs> I'm not predicting that. watch the space. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I think I, I, I totally agree with Rebecca. I think um, it's not that sponsors that the terms aren't, aren't as broad as they are in the US. That they're broader in some cases, um, and it's not that they won't have considered these things. I think it hasn't come to them needing to do so yet um, because of all the aid. Um, uh, and, and lenders' attitudes here as well, in, uh, and the liquidity that's available. So it'll be really interesting to see um, if we get more of that next year or uh, thereafter. Yes, you mentioned that documents have the flexibility for companies to pull off these aggressive maneuvers. So moving on to the primary market this year, yeah. as you mentioned, Alex, it's you know it's seen its ups and downs this year because of the pandemic. But it seems that the pandemic hasn't really affected the flexibilities being seen in both leveraged loans and in high yield bonds on the documentation front. Yeah, that's in entirely correct. Um, the markets have been surprisingly resilient you know, once they reopened, um, we didn't see any real tightening of terms, you know, and, and we continue to see um, on the loan side TLBs that have higher bond covenants. Um, and I'd say actually that's increased, um, you know, since the pandemic, since, especially since a lot of the TLBs are now accompanied by higher bonds. So the sponsors are really invested in getting, um, you know, homogenous terms across all the instruments in the structure. And yeah, I mean, if it's interesting, we can talk about a couple of areas of focus that we've seen. Um, so specified asset sales um, concept continues to be quite topical and quite an area of focus on um, some of the new deals that we've done, um, you know, since the markets opened up again in June. Yes, absolutely. This has been quite a key focus area for sponsors to insert more flexibility in documents to be able to sell assets and dividend the proceeds out. What is the justification for this flexibility? And and how have you seen it creeping into documents? Yeah, so originally uh, the genesis of the provision was where, uh, and this is sort of going way back to when it first came into the documents, was when the sponsor wasn't actually buying that part of the business. So it, it was always sort of pre-baked in that they'd be able to sell off um, uh, you know, a sort of specified specified part of the business, which was, you know, clearly identified. Um, and the banks weren't taking that into consideration as part of their credit support package. And, you know, they weren't financing the acquisition. So it was a bit more of a technicality in that sense. Um, that then developed, I think, probably, honestly, via the fact that someone will take the precedent from the previous deal and think, oh, that's a good... Um, that's a good concept. Um, we'll keep that, even though we don't have a specific part of the business that's you know identified to sell in this case. Um, and it, and it sort of developed from there, and and it got even broader, um, so that now it's just generally an ability to sell a specific percentage, um, you know, of the EBITDA um, or assets of the group, um, and then commonly, um, you know, agreed up front that those. The, the proceeds of that sale are, are carved out of the asset sale covenant and can be used to make restricted payments. Um, so this was the case in one recent deal we were looking at. Um, and, and the reason I talk about it is because there was a much 
there was a much more focus on it because it was a very real estate heavy deal. Um, so it obviously had a lot of, it was very asset heavy. Um, and there was therefore a focus on what the sponsor could do with those assets. Um, and they had agreed a, a 10% um, specified asset sale basket, 10% EBITDA, 10% assets, um, subject to pro forma uh, opening leverage. Uh, sorry, sorry, subject to not exceeding uh, pro forma opening leverage, you know, after the sale. So that was fine. I mean, that was that was clear. That was a basket. That's the commercial deal. But lenders then became very focused um, on the other ways uh, in the document via which the lenders, uh, via which the sponsor could achieve the same thing. Um, they were concerned that if they were representing this to investors um, as a 10% basket, there shouldn't be a, a whole load of other real baskets or loopholes that effectively allow the same thing. Um, even though that those are the terms that allowed this are very common in a lot of market deals. Um, the main points of discussion or things they were concerned about were certain asset sales are entirely carved out of the asset sale covenant. So they just aren't an asset disposition as defined. And therefore, there's no need to you know, put them through the asset sale covenant. So you don't have to prepay the post proceeds um, towards debt and you don't have to reinvest them um, in the business. There were some of those which, you know, lenders ended up being okay with. They're like de minimis amounts, um, unrestricted subsidiaries, um, things like that. But one of the main areas that was carved out was sale and leaseback. So any sale and leaseback transaction was just entirely carved out of this covenant. Um, and I think that was the main area of focus because that was actually a very realistic scenario of how the sponsor would realize the value from these assets because it still needed to lease back the real estate in order to continue to operate. So this was probably how they were going to do any sale of the assets. So understanding then that the uh, sale and lease specs are carved out of the asset sale covenant, they then go to build the available amount. Um, so that's built by any asset sale proceeds that, that are carved out of the covenant. Um, an available amount, um, you know, it's just a number and that can be um, used for an RPE, a restricted payment, at opening leverage. Um, so effectively, you could sell and lease back, you know, any of your assets and then dividend out the proceeds subject to opening leverage. So that was the same as the 10% specified asset sale basket, but obviously just another free and clear basket if you're doing it by way of sale and lease back. Um, and then... Even worse, um, from the lender perspective, um, they could also be used, the available amount could be used to make investments. So rather than a, a dividend restricted payment to make an investment. Um, and there was no leverage test at all on that. Um, so obviously that means you could um, invest the proceeds in an unrestricted subsidiary or a JV that could be um, owned by the sponsor, or you could then sell the unrestricted subsidiary and then distribute out the proceeds um, because that's also, you know, always built into the documents. And it was all of this was also made worse because um, they had a lot of flexibility as to how to apply IFRS 16 or not. Um, and that obviously changes how you account for your leases. Um, so in some scenarios, the leases could be um, leverage neutral. So the sale and lease back then wouldn't even that the leverage test that was there for the available amount RP basket would, would not give any real protection. So on that deal, they did end up coming up with um, 
some solution around the uh, sale and leaseback specifically. So there was a only allowed the sale and leasebacks to build the available amount um, subject to a leverage test and, and making sure that the lease is counted as debt for that leverage test. And then they had some flex items and things as well um, that the underwriters did. So, so they got to a position there, you know, that on those aspects was probably worse than some of the other market deals from a sponsor perspective, um, just because of the heightened sensitivity around um, the specified asset sale regime and the specific permission that they'd included in the document. So it sounds like the starting point was the word that came to my mind when you were telling me about it was unbelievable, but it came out <laughs> as, as, as a little more credible in terms of having slightly better protection for lenders. Um, but also the, the main takeaway for investors here is that you have to look at the whole document mm. because it's not just the headline figure or the headline amount that constitutes leakage. There are multiple avenues for leakage and they could come in many ways including to how IFRS 16 applies. Exactly, exactly. Rebecca, what have you seen in the bonds world on this front and also are there any more obscure avenues for leakage or hidden flexibilities that are not so obvious that investors should watch out for? So I think what we've seen is, um, I guess, so long as there's a lot of cash to be deployed, it's unlikely that we're going to see tightening. Um, and the trends are, as Alex mentioned, further conversion, right? So the, the, the extent you have more um, joint, uh, you know, TLB and bonds, it's understandable that um, the sponsor is going to want to benefit from um, the infrastructure and capacity that would normally be available for a bond, and likewise, what would be available for a, a TLB. Um, so we're seeing further conversion with, I think, av available amounts, which had, um, which is a TLB construct, was underwritten this year, and I think for and first uh, and recently cleared the market. I think you know you also see um, a bit of erosion because, as Alex mentioned, context and, and the rationale, what's driving the 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 carve out is lost along the way right so you know you specifically design something for a particular credit for particular circumstances um and and once it's cleared the market um it, it, it's applied to the next deal irrespective of even though it's missing the kind of the, the context and the rationale for why it was designed and we do see a lot of weakening of ancillary covenants maybe you know maybe alex is more cynical but i don't think they're always necessarily designed to be loopholes per se but but in the aggregate, they 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 do you know they could be um, used that way and um, you know given depending on on the circumstances. But I don't think they're necessarily designed to be uh, loopholes. Um, but there is capacity, um, and you know these are complex documents and the way they work together. And a lot of focus is spent on debt incurrence and RPs. Um, but you know they're they're um, covenants that are designed to work in tandem with with the principal covenants, such as transactions with affiliates, etc. Um, and it's, it's, the further and further they're weakened, it, you know, it it um, weakens uh, the, the covenant package generally. Debt by a thousand cuts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On a more encouraging note, I would say that after the pandemic, the second biggest development. Uh, in our field uh, this year has been the uh, spotlight on ESG and the growing importance of these non-financial factors being environmental, social and governance factors in the decision-making of investors. 
-hmm. How have you seen ESG being incorporated into leverage loans and or high yield bonds and impacting your work? Yeah, so on the loan side, um, we have started to see uh, a sustainability linked margin ratchet. So I think there's been uh, three or so in the market so far. And there's one that we've uh, we worked on one of those and there's been another one um, that hasn't come to market yet, but but will be coming. Um, so the way it works is there is a small increase to the margin um, at each level of the, the ratchet. Um, usually around five bips, um, if the borrower meets certain targets. So they're set by reference to key performance indicators or KPIs, um, as they're called. So one of the deals we did was uh, the KPI was a reduction in carbon emissions. Um, it was a packaging company um, and actually um, produced the packaging at the, the sites of the clients who need the packaging. So therefore reducing um carbon emissions in terms of transporting the packaging around so sort of clearly identifiable um reductions and the other and the other deal i've worked on personally has had um uh, the other kpi was uh, renewable energy sales so the, the areas that we've debated or the areas that have been focused on um are when that's been put together are you know, who sets this target um who's you know who sets the the kpi um, target each year and, and who measures whether or not the company's complied with it or not. Um, some previous deals, I think more in the investment grade market, had this being done by independent rating agencies. Um, in the sponsor-led deals we've seen, uh, it's set by management. So, you know, acting in good faith, they deliver you know, an annual report as to whether they've met the target that year and then setting the target for the next year. Um, so the question then is how to ensure, you know, there's some kind of uh, objective nature um, to that target uh, and the um, management's judgment of whether they've complied with it. You know, you need to make sure management can't just set um, you know, a target that's impossible for them not to meet, you know, next year. Um, so the way we've seen it done is there's been a, a base report, um, sort of a baseline report showing how management calculate um, how they would calculate the carbon emissions and um, generally setting out their methodology and that's run past the lenders up front um, and represents the kind of baseline report to which you have reference um, and then each year they'll calculate it in a similar way and then uh, the document usually provides each year that the target has to be better than the year before so there's always that baseline and you know they can't be setting um, a sort of made up target that, that they'll absolutely meet. Um, and then the only other thing we've seen debated is generally what happens if they fail to deliver the information that's needed to judge whether the target's been met or not, uh, or whether they fail to meet the target. Um, in most of the deals we've done so far, there's been um, a five-bit a five bit or whatever the the same uh, reduction in margin if they met the target, they would uh, have a, a small increase if they uh, failed to meet the target or, or to deliver that information. So it's um, uh, sort of reciprocal. So it's quite an exciting area of development in loan documents um, and a bit different from the usual creeping mm -hmm. regime of 
aggressive flexibilities or loosening of existing provisions. Rebecca, how has it touched the bonds world? Yeah, so we've seen green high-yield bonds um, where the proceeds need to be applied for green purposes. And we worked on one uh, last year for Lactor. Um, there are ICMA principles for green bonds and social bonds, and we expect the EU to release standards uh, and a disclosure framework next year. What we have not seen yet, uh, which um, are sustainability-linked high-yield bonds, but I, I see no reason why we um, we won't see those in, in due course. Um, so, th- so that'll be interesting to watch. Yes, definitely. I mean, this uh, this year has been innovative in terms of um, documentation, both in terms of terms coming in to adapt document for stressed borrowers in the pandemic, uh, in terms of flexibilities coming in from the sponsor side to make their documents more, let's say, stress-free for them. And also in terms of the usage of documents, such as using the super senior basket for availing of government-funded or government-backed debt. If you were to gaze into your crystal ball, <laughs> your lawyer crystal ball, uh, what do you see for 2021? Yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason why there's anything driving a change of direction, to be honest. Mm. I think um, there is still so much liquidity around and processes continue to be very competitive. Um and run in a competitive way and and I don't see much of a driver for terms you know that weren't we didn't see a tightening as a result of you know the pandemic and all the implications that had I, I can't see a, a a trigger that I'm aware of in in the next year that's that's gonna um go further than that I mean that that the terms sort of go the other way and start becoming more lender friendly again I think um, there will always be some terms, um, you know, we have a lot more, um, you know, information services now and, and you know, in, investors analysing certain terms. Um, so I think there's, it's interesting to see how that's affected um, terms because, you know, once that's become an area of focus, you know, that is the one thing that'll get tightened up. So, you know, if there's the J Crew hole, you know, that won't fly anymore. Um, so... You know, we'll see what what comes out of that and what investors start focusing on um, through that. Um, I think also we are going to, as I think we already touched on, um, uh, when you know the state aid and and other um, programs um, sort of fall away, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, for some of the credits that are still distressed how the sponsors also start using. Um, terms within the documents and flexibilities within the documents and then if that leads to a bit of a backlash you know against those terms you know in the way that j crew did for example and rebecca what does your crystal ball say (laughs) (laughs) i think that we're going to see the impact of restructuring and these various Mm -hmm. uh distress scenarios that played out in the in the drafting and the ancillary covenants i think perhaps people don't uh, appreciate that when you are counsel in that situation, um, you realize you have you know, certain capacity available, but then you hit various roadblocks um, in the documentation and um, you know, there are aggressive readings that you need to make or there, or there are situations that, that perhaps there are things you're not able to explore because of certain drafting, it's, it's ambiguous. 
So I think inevitably after, uh, you know, what, what's happened this year, you know, round of restructions in the United States, Chapter 11, there's so much that, um, that um, the restructuring teams will learn, who work very closely with mm -hmm. the leverage finance team and the bond team, there's so much that will have been learned over the course of the years. So I think next year we're going to start seeing drafting being cleaned up, you know, um, introduction of, um, you know, language you may not have interpreted a certain way. Uh, they'll add language, say, for the avoidance of that doubt, you know, this is this is, this is permitted in order that um, council and, and sponsors and companies are not put in the position where they they thought they were able to do something or they'd like to, uh, to be able to do something. Um, and they find out, actually, it's a bit trickier than they imagined it was um, when you are, you know, when you're up against the wall. So we'll keep all the lawyers busy, which is good news. <laughs> 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 all right. OK, well, that's all that we have time for today. Thank you so much, Alex and Rebecca. That has been fantastic. If uh, the listeners want to read more about this year and the happenings and how it's affected documents, Alex has written an article in Chambers Banking and Finance 2020 Guide, which um, is available on the Millbank website. And uh, that's 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 been a really, really enjoyable podcast for me to record. I hope you enjoyed being on it. Thank you so much and have a great day. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Um, thank you so much.